what's up, everybody? It's good to be here with you. Uh, we're going to the first Sunday of every month. We've been, that's a little too much now. See, I'm just picky. The first Sunday of every month, we've been uh, exploring a different spiritual practice. We've been talking all year about what it means to follow Jesus. And the first Sunday of every month, we've been talking about a practice we think that is essential to supporting uh, life in Christ. And one of the images that we've used to describe the, the, the place that these practices have in our lives is the idea of a trellis and a vine. A uh, vine doesn't need a trellis to grow, but it sure helps, especially if you want that vine to bear a lot of fruit. Without, um, without a trellis, the vine can be in danger of getting trampled down or overtaken by weeds or it simply won't get enough light. A trellis helps index that vine in a certain direction um, so that you can get as much fruit as possible. And we've been saying that the spiritual practices for Christians are like that. They lift our lives off the ground so they don't get trampled by sorrows and hardship. They expose us to as much light, the light of God, as we possibly can, and they index our lives in a certain direction. The practices are not what it means to follow Jesus, but they support the life of following Him. And that's certainly true of this month's practice which is the practice of fasting. And it makes sense to talk about fasting at the beginning of Lent because this has historically been for hundreds of years a time when the church has opened its heart to fasting as well as to prayer and to the giving of alms or charity, the giving uh, generously to the poor. Fasting is a wonderful thing to talk about, not just because of what it means for our lives, because of what it tells us about God. All of the spiritual practices tell us something about the heart of God. Scripture reading tells us that God longs to reveal himself to you. Worship tells us that God is worthy of our lives. Prayer teaches us that God wants to listen to us. Silence and solitude teach us that God is good company. And what does fasting teach us about God? It teaches us that God is enough. God is enough. God can sustain our lives in the midst of want and weariness, suffering and temptation. When we fast, we are more equipped to choose want and suffering and weariness when love and faithfulness require it. There are all kinds of times in our lives when faithfulness, love, and beauty will require us to go without to say no to something good, to go without food, sex, fill in the blank. 
Every day I'm confronted with opportunities for me to say no to something that may be harmful to me or others. Where do we learn to exercise the spiritual muscles that enable us to choose something like self-denial? Where do we exercise the spiritual muscles to say, no, God is enough? The biblical answer is we learn that in the practice of fasting. Today, I want us to look at Matthew chapter 3 and 4, chapter 3 starting in verse 16, and I want us to consider how Jesus used fasting to fight the devil. Here we go. Matthew 3, starting in verse 16 and going to Matthew 4, verse 4. This is God's Word. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. No kidding. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. If your word is like food, Father God, would you feed us to full this morning, praying this in Christ's name, amen. So let's just start at the beginning here um, in verse 16 of the text we just wrote and when, or just read, when Jesus was baptized, he immediately went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So, uh, Jesus has just been baptized by John the Baptist. This is very early in his ministry. In fact, this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. This is Jesus accepting the job to be your Savior and substitute by going through the waters. This is Him beginning His journey to the cross for you. And uh, so that's a pretty big deal. And to begin that ministry, he needs two things. He needs what we need when we get up every morning. The equipping of the Holy Spirit and the affirmation of God's love. That's what I need every day of my life to be able to accomplish what I am called to accomplish. 
That's what I prayed for you and me this morning. That today we would receive equipping by the Holy Spirit and an affirmation of God's love. And when Jesus goes through the water, the heavens are open to him and the Spirit comes down like a dove and he hears audibly the voice of his Father. This is my beloved in whom I am well pleased. And he's going to need that affirmation and he's going to need that power because look at where he's led next. Uh, What was Jesus' first act in ministry? Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the what? Wilderness to be tempted by who? The devil. So the first act of the Spirit in Jesus' ministry was to lead him into the wilderness to expose him to Satan's testings. And when God's anointed one goes into the wilderness to be tempted, we should all get deja vu. This has happened before in the scriptures. One of the very first stories about God's anointed representatives on the earth is about them being tested by Satan. That's Adam and Eve. It's page two in your Bibles. And then there's Israel that for 40 years after they were rescued from Egypt, spent 40 years out in the wilderness to be tested by the Lord. When God's representatives in the world sent to bless the world, the very first thing that always happens to God's representatives is that they're tested. Uh, And in each case, food is a central part of their testing. Think about Adam and Eve. I grew up hearing the story of the fall and the original sin that broke everything. And I've read and heard that story so many times, but it wasn't until this week that I reflected on the fact that the original sin had to do with food. The inability not to eat something that was set in front of you. Now, the temptation was not food. Like, that's not what was evil about it. Food is good. But it was the instinct to trust one's own appetites rather than what God said was good. Um, But food is such a basic appetite that in the scriptures it metaphorically stands for really all of our heart's appetites. The stuff that we want. And... Adam and Eve's appetites got the best of them, didn't it? And it kind of broke everything. Fast forward to Israel in the wilderness after the Exodus. And they're called to be in the wilderness, not 40 days like Jesus, but 40 years. And they're to learn to depend upon God. And in those stories, he's always making water come out of rocks, making manna fall from heaven. And yet, what are the Israelites always grumbling about? Food. Meat pots from Egypt. What's a meat pot? I don't know, but they wanted it bad. More than the food that God was giving to sustain them. And everything broke. They never learned 
to listen to God. Well, here we are again. God's anointed one sent out to face Satan in the wilderness. Not 40 years, but 40 days. Coming face to face with the tempter and the temptation is food. He will be tested as Adam and Eve was tested, tested as Israel was tested. He will hunger as they hungered. And will he triumph? If he does, he will make a way for people to go safely to the promised land of forgiveness, eternal life. All that to say, there's a lot riding on this moment. Salvation rides on this. If Satan succeeds in deterring Jesus from the path of humble, suffering obedience and dependence upon God, you and I have no salvation. Here Jesus has to prove that he is the perfect substitute so that he can be the perfect sacrifice. How will he prepare to meet Satan? Answer, he fasts. Verse 2. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came. For years, this story made no sense to me. Why would Jesus fast? Wasn't he making himself more susceptible to temptation? Wasn't he making it harder for him? When so much was on the line, seems kind of reckless. My assumption was that fasting made Jesus weaker. And isn't it just like the devil? To come to us after the end of a long week when we're hangry and we're at our worst. But I had gotten it backwards. Fasting didn't make Jesus weaker. It made him stronger. He fasted not so that he would be weak, but so that he would be prepared. Because it was through fasting that Jesus cultivated what he needed to take on the devil. It was in fasting that he learned that God was enough. Fasting, he didn't get caught off guard. He caught the devil off guard. And before we talk about the mechanics of how all that works... Let's just linger here on the idea that Jesus felt the need to fast. Jesus fasted. Here is Jesus standing at the threshold of the most important ministry in the history of the world. On his obedience and righteousness hangs the redemption of all things and of all the hundreds of things that Jesus might have done to fight temptation and this threat to salvation, he is led to fast. And that should just give us pause. To realize that the Son of God at the beginning of his ministry, he began it with a 40-day fast. I couldn't help but think this week, what about me, Lord? (laughs) Golly, can I face 
the incredible challenges and temptations in my life without this practice if Jesus thought that he needed it? We can just ponder that. How did it work? The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loads of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now these This is a direct quote from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Jesus has obviously been meditating on this verse over these 40 days. And in doing so, we realize that when he says that man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, these are things that he has experienced over those 40 days in meditating on this passage. That's part of what he was doing in the desert. I'm sure he was doing more. 40 days is a long time. But he was meditating on Deuteronomy. And he had experienced its truth in the process. Jesus is always and everywhere talking about being nourished by God. About his life and ministry somehow being sustained by God's presence, his will, his word, and his goodness. And so later in Jesus' ministry, he's fasting from lunch or perhaps all day, and he's ministering to the Samaritan woman at the well. And his disciples come to him at the end of that passage and they urge him to eat. Do you remember what Jesus says? He says, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And they're like, did he go to 7-Eleven? Like, what does he have? Do you have a cliff bar or something back there? And then he says, no. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. The truth is that in his 40 days of solitude in the hot desert, he was feeding his body and soul with manna from heaven, which was the word of God that he was meditating on. He was drawing nourishment from it. He had just spent 40 days teaching himself by not eating and by being sustained that God was enough, drawing energy and sustenance and hope from God's word. In this way, fasting is not as much a deprivation of food as a recognition of a different kind of provision, a provision of a different kind of food, what what the Bible calls bread from heaven. We fast in order to direct our hearts and our minds away from our normal source of sustenance to heavenly food. But notice the purpose of it all. In Matthew um, 4, it's not simply to draw closer to God or to learn about God's goodness, but it's to prepare the soul for times of temptation and lack. 
Jesus had intentionally proven himself or proven to himself that God could sustain him in hardship so that when he was tempted to believe that that was not possible, he could say, no, I've experienced the love of God. He sustained me before in hardship and he can do it again. This is how I think about it. This is what Jesus was doing over those 40 days. He was practicing at game speed. Like in order to perform well as an athlete, to perform when it counts, to have a measure of the mental and and physical giftedness that you need, you need to experience that pressure. You need to play for keeps. You need to practice at game speed. Fasting is a way to put ourselves in a situation of moderate deprivation and discomfort in order to practice a period of time of being sustained by God directly and joyfully so that when we are asked to be deprived of something good, we've learned that God can sustain us in those spaces. In fasting, we learn to suffer happily as we feast on God. And that's a good lesson to learn because in our lives, you will suffer. No matter else what happens to you, you will suffer. Suffering is unavoidable in life. Joy is not. And in fasting, we learn to suffer with joy. In fasting, we learn to be content even when we don't get what we want. With fasting, we decide of our own accord not to give our bodies something that they want, like food. And as a result, when somebody else decides not to give us something that we want... Our spouse, our friend, life, or God. We don't freak out. We don't rage. We don't go ballistic on Twitter. Because we've trained our souls to be content. Even when we don't get our way. We can't follow Jesus without denying ourselves. Fasting is a way that we practice self-denial. And it aids in our fighting of temptation because in checking one's appetite in one area of our life, the thought is that we'll be able to grow in our ability to check our appetites in other areas. Every time we fast, we're saying along with Jesus, not bread alone, Lord, but you. Not bread alone, Lord, but you. And we do that so that we can say, not sex alone, Lord, but you. Not money alone, Lord, but you. You alone, Lord, for me. This is how the ancients thought about fasting. So Thomas Akempis said this, Restrain from gluttony 
and thou shalt, we don't thou shalt enough these days, but here we go. Restrain from gluttony and thou shalt the more easily restrain all the inclinations of the flesh. When Augustine was asked why fast, he said this, because it is sometimes necessary to check the delight of the flesh in respect to licit pleasures, the things that are good, in order to keep it from yielding to illicit joys. And then a more modern sage, Dallas Willard, says this, Fasting teaches temperance or self-control and therefore teaches moderation and restraint with regard to our fundamental drives. Since food has the pervasive place it does in our life, the effect of fasting will be diffused throughout our personality. In the midst of all our needs and wants, we experience the contentment of the child that has been weaned from its mother's breast, and godliness with contentment is great gain. All of these sages made me think of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians when he says, I don't run aimlessly, I don't box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Fasting is more than growing our willpower muscles. But it's not less than that. Self-control, after all, is one of the fruits of the Spirit. And self-discipline is the other side of that coin. Self-control is the ability to say no to something when goodness requires it. And self-discipline is the willingness to say yes to something when goodness and faithfulness requires it. And both, the Bible is clear, are essential to a truly flourishing and mature life. And they are what we're trying to cultivate, in a sense, when we're fasting. But it's not about willpower ultimately. It can't be. Because in the end, your willpower gets creamed. 100%. One of the primary reasons none of us ever fasts, if we can admit that that's true for most of us, is that it's super hard and very discouraging. When we fast, we want to hear church bells. We want to be drawn into the loving, deep heart of the Father. We want to feel the warmth of His presence. But what we often are is just hungry, hangry, discouraged. We have headaches. We're mad. We're frustrated. We're exhausted. We're grumpy. And we realize just how weak we are and how far we have to go. In fasting, we're trying to wean our hearts from the Western gods of pleasure and instant gratification and sensory appetites, and nothing makes me want to go to those things more than fasting. I fasted this Wednesday, and uh, 
I'm not supposed to tell you that. Jesus says, I just lost that. There was a treasure in heaven. It just, it's gone. <laughs> gone. So that one's gone. That's fine. It's a sermon illustration. All I wanted to do, there was two things I wanted to do all day long. I wanted, I kept thinking about buying clothes. I was like, why do I want to go to Shields and buy clothes? That's all I'm thinking. I'm not thinking about the Lord. I'm thinking about buying stuff. And of course, I'm thinking about eating stuff. The first thing that happens when we fast is it reveals where you are in bondage, and where you go when you're uncomfortable. Richard Foster says this. He says, fasting reveals the things that control us. If pride controls us, it reveals that almost immediately. Anger, bitterness, jealousy, strife, fear, if they are within us, they will surface during fasting. So if it's 11 a.m. and you're hangry, fasting is doing its job. It's revealing what's in your soul. Dallas Willard says this, This discipline teaches us a lot about ourselves very quickly. It will certainly prove humiliating to us as it reveals to us how much our peace depends on the pleasure of eating. It may also bring to mind how we are using food pleasure to assuage the discomforts caused in our bodies by faithless and unwise living and attitudes, lack of self-worth, meaningless work, purposeless existence, or the lack of rest or exercise. If nothing else, though, it will certainly demonstrate how powerful and clever our body is in getting its own way against our strongest resolves. And Pastor John Piper says, of fasting, she reveals the measure of food's mastery over us, or television, or computers, or whatever we submit to again and again to conceal the weakness of our hunger for God. Wow. And she remedies by intensifying the earnestness of our prayers and saying with our whole body what prayer says with the heart, I long to be satisfied in God alone. And if the only thing that fasting does in your life is make you weak, that itself is a spiritual gift. Because it's in that place that we run to Jesus. It's in that place that we just say in the deepest parts of our hearts, I want to be satisfied in God alone. And so fasting, like the gospel, isn't for the self-sufficient. It's for the poor in spirit. This isn't about awesome willpower. It isn't about getting a swole soul. You see what I did there? Okay. It's about learning to cherish Christ above all else. And what better position to cherish Him than when we feel our need of Him? He said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He says, whoever drinks the water that I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give them will become in them a fount of water springing up into eternal life. Fasting is about learning to cherish God. 
Um, let me close just with a few practical words about what this looks like. Uh, if you were willing to take it on as a practice. One, start slow and be wise. Start small. Don't go from not fasting to a 40-day fast. Never do a 40-day fast. You are not Jesus. Never go uh, from not fasting to a week-long fast. Start with one meal. Start by fasting one meal, maybe once a month. I don't know. Start small and be wise. And if you, if you have a history with food that's kind of unhealthy and it may be unwise for you to fast from food, you can fast from other things. You can, uh, but fa- know this, that fasting isn't not doing something that's not good for you. Like some people will give up for Lent things that they should just be given up for the rest of their life. That's not fasting, that's sanctification. That's, you know, that's just growing up. You can give up other things, but they should be regular and good. Things that create a longing in our hearts. For a longing in our hearts for God. And then when you don't, what, when you're not doing those things and when you're feeling that longing, you need to create space to go to the Word. What are you going to fill that hunger with? With prayer, with scripture reading, with meditation on God's word, with just being in his presence. If you're fasting from food, you need to tell your loved ones. Because if you're, you know, if your wife or husband cooks a sweet meal and you get home and it's just there on the table and they're like, I cooked. And you're like, I'm fasting, babe. Sorry. They will get mad at you. That is a true thing that happens I don't know how I know that. (laughs) And then be able to break your fast for the sake of love. Like the desert fathers and mothers who practiced fasting regularly, they had a rule that they would never maintain a fast if it meant being inhospitable. Never. Even if they vowed like a 10-day fast to the Lord and somebody showed up on day eight, they'd break it for the sake of love for the sake of sensitivity for others, because love matters more than fasting. And then be patient. You will be discouraged. Anytime we're denying ourselves of something good, it is hard. But over time, we do grow. And I would hope that as you practice this regularly, if you choose to, that you will expect God to show up for you. As you step out in faith. Um, If you never fast, Jesus will still love you. And And remember that what fasting teaches us about God, however, is something that you should cherish all the days of your life. God is enough. And more than enough for you. The world may not give you what you want. It may take away things you think you need. God is always enough for you. Let's feed on that in our hearts. Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, what a challenging 
practice and yet how meaningful. One, we just thank you that you perfectly fasted on our behalf and accomplished our salvation. Thank you for fighting Satan in the wilderness and where we fail time and time again, you succeeded and made a way for us. Thank you for being like food to us and like water. Thank you for creating in our souls the the capacity to have a spring of everlasting life that would well up into our lives. I want more of you. We want more of you. We hunger for you to be content by you and you alone. And so as we step out in faith in whatever way we might to take hold of these truths, I pray that you would meet us as the God who is enough for us. And I pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.